Let me begin with a word of prayer before we dive into the word. Um, Heavenly Father, the greatest need of our souls right now is to hear from you. Everything else is less important, less significant, less necessary right now than for us to hear from your word through the Spirit. And so we ask, Father God, that you would come, that you would do what that song, Psalm 16, says, and that you pour out your presence on us, that we would know that you are our portion, that Christ Jesus is our provision and our protection, and he's the one in whom we put our trust and confidence. Communicate that, Father God, through your scriptures today, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you guys today. Uh, we are today at the end of a series we've been in for several weeks now through John 6. Um, and from the very beginning of the series, literally the first week I was preparing for this series, I knew that at the very end I was, I was going to feel compelled, and I do, to gather up some of the loose threads that are in this chapter and by God's grace and help, draw them together in a more complete tapestry so that the last time we talk about John 6, um, in this series at least, would be a time where we understand, we walk away and understand what God is trying to communicate to us through this chapter. John 6 is one of the most remarkable chapters in the entire Bible. It has changed many lives. It's changed my life. And I am very reticent on leaving it without making sure that we walk away as a body with its message very clear in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, it is, I mean, the message of, of John 6 is in many respects the focal point of the entire scriptures. Hope you'll see that today. And if it's the focal point of the entire Bible, that means it's the focal point of all reality. And I think we will see that today together. John 6 began, and we're going to get to, to, to the text in just a second. John 6 began uh, with it being the reality of John 6. The message of John 6 was introduced to us in the form of a test. I don't know if you remember this, but at the very beginning, the first week that we looked at this chapter, you may recall in John 6, 4, the author writing these words, Now the Passover feast... Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this, John tells us, to test him. That's why he said it. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Before he even asked the question. That's how John 6 began. It began with a test. And Jesus asked Philip this test, te or Jesus te was testing Philip here, but really this was a test for all 12 disciples. They were all huddled around him, as we saw. And this is a test that's not only for them, but it's for us. It is a test for you and me who would read this account later, 2,000 years later. We are not exempt from this test. Uh, just because we're separated by 2,000 years does not get us off the hook. When we come to this text, when we come to John 6, we are embracing the question that Jesus asked Philip here, this test. And the, 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 the essence of this question is, how do we respond to the Christ presented to us in John 6? All of the signs that we saw all the claims that he made, all that he said, and we're going to look at some of those again today. What is our response to that Jesus? What is our response to that Christ that, that was presented before us in this text? Remember, he began this chapter by feeding 5,000 people, at least on the side of a mountain. And then he proceeded to walk, <laughs> walk across the Sea of, Galax, uh, of Galilee in the middle of a windstorm. This is the Jesus that we encountered here. And then after that, for more than 40 verses, he unpacks what those two events mean. He tells us who he is in 
incredible detail. But it's all summarized in this one verse. You remember this verse because we repeated it almost every week. Verse 35 of John 6. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, I, Jesus is saying, am the one that you were created for. That's who I am. All other pursuits in this world, in your life, will leave you empty and will leave you unsatisfied. So come to me, the true bread from heaven, and feed on me, he says, eat of me, drink of me, and be satisfied forever. And upon hearing this message, the crowd leaves. That was what we saw last week. They leave this message because in many ways, this crowd is a lot like us. They are trapped in sinful desires, desires that don't incline them towards Christ, but incline them away from Christ. They are addicted to pursuits of lesser glories than Jesus. And therefore, when they encounter Christ, don't assume that you would have done anything different. When they encounter Christ here, they reject the Son of the living God, this man Jesus, and they effectively sever themselves from eternal life. And at this point, you remember last week, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples. He looks them in the eye and he says, do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go with the crowd? And I I want to stop here for a moment, and I want to take this question, and I want to turn it towards us. It was a question to 12 men in a moment in history, but it's a question for every human being on this planet. And the question is, do you want to go away as well? What, what, What if you were there, like in the midst of the 12 disciples, and Jesus was there, you've seen all of this play out, the 5,000 being fed, the Sea of Galilee being traversed on its surface, and him say all that he said here, what would you say? The thing about this question here at the end of John 6, this is it's not a lot different from the question at the beginning of John 6. How are we going to feed these people? It's the same, because both of them represent a test for us. The question at the end of this chapter is still part of this test that the disciples have been walking through. The test isn't about food logistics for 5,000 people who are following you through uh, a a deserted area of of the Sea of Galilee. And the question isn't isn't about whether or not you want to still hang out with this rabbi Jesus. The question ultimately here that the test presents, like underneath both of these questions, is this single question. What do you make of me? Jesus is asking them. What do you, in all that we've seen, what do you make of me? Who am I to you? Not, not who am I to the, to the crowd that has abandoned me. Not who am I to the Jewish leaders in Capernaum who are scoffing at me. Who am I to you? He's talking to the 12 disciples who have seen this all play out every moment of it. But he's also talking to us because we've all seen this play out. We've read through the text. We've seen everything that's happened here. And so you and I also have a question to answer. What would you say to Jesus in this moment? What would your response be? If he asked you that after all that you've seen, do you want to go away as well? I asked uh, Rachel this on the way home from church yesterday. I kind of knew where I was going to end up. Like I said earlier, (laughs) we were going to get burgers and I said, if Jesus asked you that question that he asked the disciples at the end, do you want to go away as well, what would your answer be? And Rachel's answer, my wife, her answer was the same as mine. Um, And hopefully it's the same as yours. No, I don't want to go away. I don't want to go away. And that's a good, solid response. But that's not the response Jesus or Simon gives. Simon Peter doesn't give that response. The answer that he gives to Jesus is incredible. It's in John 6, 68. It's not a simple no. It's not a, I'm going to stick around here for a little longer. The answer is 
an answer that begins to plumb the depths of who Christ really is. And it's this answer. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is an amazing answer. Think about what he's saying here. He begins with a simple question, Lord, to whom shall we go? What does he mean by that? Well, he means that there isn't anyone we could go to if we wanted to. There's no one. Who could we possibly leave for you? There's no one that can satisfy the soul's deepest longings, and there's no one who can meet our greatest needs but you, Jesus. That's the statement that he's making by asking that question. Uh, the implication here, and it's a fair implication, is if there was someone else that we could go to, we would go to them. I mean, that's the point. But here's the thing. There's no one better than Christ. There's no one better than Jesus. He is the, he is the only place in the universe, Simon is saying here, where we can be satisfied, eternally satisfied. And in coming to him and receiving him and believing in him, the whole flow of this passage has taught us that's where eternal life is. Eternal life is trusting in Jesus. Peter knows this as a fact. He's not dilly-dallying. He says, you have the words of eternal life, Jesus. You alone. And we have believed and come to know, not just think, not just hope, maybe, but to know that you are the Holy One from God. So this is the disciples passing the test that we saw in verse 6. The test that this question represents at the end. They see Christ here for who he really is. They see his matchless, unparalleled glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father. That's John 1. They see that and they believe in him. Which, if you recall the first week, that's a long way off from where they were. I mean, where they were the first week, we, uh, we had summarized the state of their hearts after this, the incident on the Sea of Galilee uh, from Mark 6.52, which told us that, that there, even after the feeding of the 5,000, and even after him walking on the Sea of Galilee, they were amazed and confused about the whole thing and did not Mark says, understand the loaves, what had happened on the mountain, but their hearts were hardened. That's how Mark describes their state after those two signs. They saw the signs just like the crowd saw the signs. That's really cool that you can do these things for us, Jesus. That's awesome. You can provide us food. You can protect us in the middle of the storm. But they didn't see through those pictures to the infinite value and worth of Jesus to meet every need eternally. So what happened here? Like, how did they get to this? What was it that the disciples saw and heard which elicited this response from Peter? This is an extremely important question, obviously, for people in your lives who do not know Jesus. For those who don't trust in Christ, this is a huge question. What is it about Christ that should draw them to Jesus? But this is an important question for us, for believers, for those who do trust in Christ, whose faith wasn't just a, a one-time event at the beginning of our Christian walk, but whose faith is a daily, perpetual reality through the ups and downs of life over the entire course of our lives, since the moment we first believed. We need to hear this too. We need to know what this is. What is it that they saw? And so, to close this series, what I want to do, something I don't normally do, but I'm going to have three sermon points. So if you're a note taker, this is great. It's going to be awesome for you. Normally I just walk through the text, but I've got three points because we're wrapping this whole chapter up and there's a lot of points in the text, condensing them to three. Three facets in this story of John 6 that have eternal implications and that show us what the disciples ultimately saw in Jesus. And I want us to be able to to say with Peter, at the end of this chapter, I want all of us to feel in our hearts his words, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? I want us to feel that. I want, I want us to feel in our hearts to him, you have the words of eternal life, you alone, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the goal. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or a mobile phone with a Bible app, please take it. It will be enormously helpful for you. Turn with me to John 6. We're going to start in verse 11. John 6, 11. I want you to see these in the, in the scriptures. Not just hear them from my lips. What I say only matters as much as it corresponds to the reality in this book. We need to see these with our own eyes. So here's the first facet that we're looking at. Number one. And, and, and this, this scene that we're about to read is when we first saw the miracle with the feeding of the 5,000. Something happens immediately after this that we kind of passed over in the first week, but it's not unimportant. It is not trivial. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So notice, immediately after this incredible miracle, Jesus gives a command. He tells his <clears throat> his 12 disciples to do something. He tells them to gather over, gather up the, the leftover fragments so that there is nothing uh, that will be lost, which is fascinating to come from Jesus. He just created bread out of nothing. He can make food out of thin air. Why does he want to keep scraps, the leftovers? Well, in part, this act makes the sign, the miracle that he just did, vividly clear. You cannot get 12 baskets filled with bread from five barley loaves. That is not scientifically or physically possible, unless you're Jesus. No one could mistake what happened here. This scene clearly proves that something supernatural had taken place, something beyond anyone's explanation. This was a miracle. But is that all that's going on here? Is there more to these 12 baskets? Well, notice the number. They filled 12 baskets. Not 10, not 15. 12. Jesus made the bread. I mean, and it wasn't beyond him, the Son of God, to make the bread up to the point where that's perfect, stuck the landing, <laughs> no more need for any more bread. He could have done it that way. He doesn't do that way. He does it so that there's excess, there's more to spare. Why? Well, it's clear in this moment that the 12 baskets are being held by 12 disciples who have gathered up the fragments. He sends his own disciples to collect this food. Now, that cannot be a mere coincidence. And I say that because John wrote it down. If John thought it was just a coincidence, he wouldn't need to write the number of baskets they picked up. He wouldn't even need to write that they picked up any basket baskets at all. How is that relevant? Unless it is relevant. So what's going on here? The testing that Jesus does in verse 6 with the question, in doing that, Jesus is showing them in the 12 baskets that are before them right now, bread that did not exist, mind you, on the face of the planet before this moment, He's showing them that nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is impossible for him. This man that they follow, this rabbi, can create food at will. So what can't he do? He, he's effectively telling them, if I am your shepherd, you shall not want. Not ever. Jesus provided 12 baskets to show that he is sufficient for every need they will ever have, which he makes abundantly clear in that verse I told you earlier, John 6, 35, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's his whole point. The 12 baskets are a physical picture that points to a spiritual reality that is far more important than a full belly, far more important than not starving. As hard as that is for us to imagine, it is a picture of eternal satisfaction. It is the statement very loud, very clear, that Jesus is always enough, always sufficient, because it is only in him that we find true and lasting satisfaction. The point of this first facet that we see, the 12 baskets, is that Jesus is our provision. He doesn't just give us the things we need, and he does that. He, he may do it some days more clearly than other days, but he gives us what we need to do what he's called us to do. But what we need most isn't actually food. What we need most is Jesus. Everything in our lives, and I say this very intentionally, everything else in our lives apart from Christ is infinitely secondary, as important as it may be. He is the true bread from heaven. He's what we were made for. That's the first facet of John 6 that we need to see. Jesus is sufficient as our provision, but there's more. Because as you know, there are some problems which having food in your stomach matters very little to solve. There are certain things you will deal with in your life that having a full belly has no effect on. And certainly the, that thought must have passed through the, the minds of the 12 disciples Later that evening, out on the Sea of Galilee, with wind battering their boat and preventing them from making headway to Capernaum. The issue there wasn't a need for food. The issue there was, we need to be protected. Wind is a problem. You've ever been on a boat in the middle of a lake or the ocean? Wind is a problem when you're on a boat. In fact, for them, it was an existential problem. Because a strong enough wind can easily send a boat like the one the disciples were presumably in to the very bottom of the Sea of Galilee. And so here, they didn't need food. What they needed was safety. These waves could have pummeled that little Galilean boat into smithereens, debris, and then drown all of its passengers. So no doubt the disciples were reflecting on that. I mean, 12 uh, full baskets of bread... Very helpful on dry ground when you're hungry. Not so helpful, helpful in, in the middle of a windstorm in the Sea of Galilee. And yet this is precisely what happens after the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And having been through this text, you already know where I'm going. Jesus comes out onto the water and saves them. That's what happens in John 6. We read this the very first week that we looked at this text. But what I want to do today is do something I don't normally do. I'm going to pull away from John and go to a different gospel, Matthew's account, because there we find an interesting scene that John did not decide to record. John chose not to record it, maybe because Matthew had already recorded it, maybe because it didn't actually fit in within what John wanted to communicate, but there is a profound link in Matthew's recording of this event to Peter and what he actually says to Jesus at the end of John 6 has direct implications flowing from this event. When he says, Lord, to whom, we, whom will we go, that's not where Peter was the night before. And we're going to see that right here. So Matthew 14, verse 22. So stick your hand in John 6 because we'll get back to that. Matthew 14, 22. Just after the feeding the 5,000, this is Matthew's account of the same event. So look at this. Immediately he, that's Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth, and in the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them. 
walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, which is probably what we would do. (laughs) And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Jesus, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, truly, you are the Son of God. So this is clearly a different angle and perspective of the same event that we read back in uh, John 6 a few weeks ago. But it's important because it gives us, like I said, a glimpse into Peter's heart and mind after the feeding of the 5,000. So he sees Jesus here walking on the water in the middle of a windstorm. And something in Peter clicks about who Jesus is. This is not a normal man. This is not even a really great rabbi. This is not even a miracle worker who can heal people. He is walking on the water like he owns the water. Like someone who tells the water what to do and the water obeys him. That's what Jesus looked like out there. And Peter sees this. And so he gets brave. He does what Jesus told them to do. He takes heart puts off his fear. And so if Jesus can walk on the water by his own will, then certainly he could command Peter, come, and Peter could do what we all know is scientifically impossible, what we know is categorically inconceivable. Peter could walk on the surface of the Sea of Galilee as wind is battering it and huge waves are climbing up into the the sky. Now try try to envision this. Try Try to put yourself there. This is not normal. This is profound. This is wild. I I mean, I doubt, I mean, maybe you're super brave. I would not have said this to Jesus. I would have stayed in the boat, sat a little bit lower, and said, thank God it's him. But Peter does this. Peter asked Jesus to command him to walk out on the water, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him here. Jesus could have said, are you kidding me, Peter? Uh, Only I can walk on the water because I made it. You need to stay in the boat, and and I'll come to you. He could have said that to, to Peter, but he doesn't. Look what he says. Come. Come, Peter. He commands Peter to walk on the water, And Peter does. This fisherman who has spent years of his life on this same body of water, tossing nets in to catch fish, pulling them up into his boat. Now he is, listen to me, walking on it like it's dry ground. But then he sees the wind and he freaks out. It looks scary. And he starts to sink. And he does what all of us should do. He cries out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus does. He reaches into the water, however deep he had to, pulls Peter back up, and then comes the rebuke. A gentle, gracious rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? It was such a bold request. And yet here Peter is 
after looking at the wind, after looking at the waves, after seeing how threatening it really was, he begins to sink. Because although Peter understood some things about Jesus and was shocked and amazed about what he was capable of, it still hasn't fully sunk in yet. It says here that when Jesus stepped into the boat, the wind ceased. We saw that in John 6. Matthew tells us that the disciples at that point worshipped him, which is right. He should be worshipped. But we know from our time in Mark that they still don't fully understand. They make a confession of faith here about him being the Son of God, but Mark told us at the end of the same event that their amazement isn't a result of, of truly understanding and comprehending who Christ is and trusting him with their lives. That's not what's going on here. Because Mark said at the end of this sequence, they were amazed because they didn't understand the loaves and because their hearts were hardened. That's why they were amazed. They still did not understand what was going on. They don't see that Jesus is actually not only someone who can protect them in all situations, but Jesus is the source of eternal protection. He's not only the all-sufficient provision of our souls, the bread of life, but he is our all-sufficient protection. And the protection that Christ provides isn't just temporary. It's not here one day and gone the next. It's not ephemeral. The protection Christ provides is everlasting. It never goes away. So listen to me very clearly here. To be in the arms of Jesus, like Peter was, is to be in the only truly safe place in the entire universe. There's nowhere else that's safer than this. We may think our homes are safe. We may think our neighborhoods are safe. Our communities are safe. We may feel like our country is a safe country to live in. We may exercise all the time. We may eat healthy. We may do all the things to keep our life on track. And those are sensible things to do. But let me be real with you. None of that will protect you forever. It can't. The only reality that will protect you forever, for all eternity, is Jesus Christ. Period. Every other thing will fail you one day. It will. Which is precisely what Jesus communicates in his discourse when he gets to Capernaum and his teaching in the synagogue. In fact, that was the key point that he made immediately after saying that he was the bread of life. Listen to this from John 6, 37. Jesus tells them, the crowd and his disciples, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, listen to this, nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. That nothing is huge. That nothing is worth banking your life on. What it means is this, is if right now you have faith in Christ Jesus, if you really do trust him, even if that faith is weak, even if that faith is tired, even if that faith is alloyed with, at some moments, doubt and inconsistency and confusion, if it's real, true, saving faith, then you are part of what the Father has given the Son in this verse. And therefore, you are part of this promise. This verse, if your faith is in Christ, is talking about you. And Jesus is saying in this verse, I will never lose you. I will never lose you. It is impossible for me to lose you. And here's the reason why. To lose you would be to disobey my Father. And that is one thing I refuse to do. My Father's will is to keep all that he's given me. And therefore, I will lose nothing. If you highlight verses in your Bible or underline, underline that verse and recognize that you're wrapped up in that. His point here is that he alone is the safest place in the world. Whoever believes in him, he will never cast out, not ever. You are safe in his arms 
for all eternity, and he will never let you go. Please feel something of that today if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, take it as an invitation to experience this reality because it's true and real. So those are the two facets to begin with. There's a third facet. The first two are, let me just review. Jesus is our all-sufficient provision. He supplies every need, especially your eternal need. The second facet is that Jesus is our eternal, all-sufficient protection. He did not lose Peter on the Sea of Galilee, and he will not lose you one moment of your life. He will bring you safely into his heavenly kingdom. But the reason why Christ can be both our provision and our protection forever is because of this third and final facet. The disciples may not have even fully understood all that was going on here, but they would later. We find this facet only hinted at at the very beginning of this chapter. So look with me at John 6, verse 4. John 6, verse 4. And what I want to do is I want to see what the context is that this entire chapter has played out in. What was this event set in? John makes it clear right at the beginning. John 6, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. That is an interesting statement to make because John never ever returns to tell us why this is important. That's the first and the last time he mentions the Passover feast in John 6. In fact, when we get to chapter 7, he's completely forgotten, quote-unquote, about that. And he's moved on to the Feast of the Booths. So we have to ask, why would John waste ink? You don't waste ink in the first century, if you can, if you can help it, on telling us about the Passover here. What's the point of that? Why mention it here? Mentioning an event, a Jewish feast that is about to take place before a pivotal miracle on the side of the mountain that leads to and triggers everything else we see in this chapter. Why do that? Passover, of course, was, we've looked at this many times, it was the Jewish feast established by God when the people of Israel were were freed from 400 years of slavery and bondage to Egypt. It's a seminal event in the history of Israel when Pharaoh, after plague, after plague, after plague, finally relents and removes his hand from the people and lets the Israelites go. You may recall it from from Exodus 12, which unpacks what this feast was. God established this this feast even before the Exodus takes place. And he tells the people of Israel, he says to them, this feast that I'm going to commend to you, that you're going to keep for generations and generations, plays out like this. You take a lamb, one-year-old male lamb without any blemishes, And I want you to kill that lamb at twilight. Then I want you to take that lamb's blood and I want you to put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of your home, the home that you're going to eat this lamb in. Because at night I want you to roast the lamb over the fire and then I want you to eat it. Eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. I want you to have this as your feast. And this is the Passover feast. It it gets installed in Israel's history right here. And the reason why this feast is necessary for them to leave Egypt is because of the final plague, which you all know if you've seen Prince of Egypt or if you've read Exodus. Exodus 12, verse 12, in that passage, God explains very clearly why he needs them to do this feast, why he wants them to to put the blood on the, on the doorpost and on the lintel. This is what he says, Exodus 12, 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt at that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's God's explanation of why they have this Passover feast. And the feast is repeated generation after generation to remember this moment when God broke the death grip that Pharaoh had on the people of Israel by taking Egypt's 
firstborn. They took his firstborn, Israel, and he's turning their sin against them and saying, now I'm going to take your firstborn. You took mine, and I'm going to show you what it feels like to lose yours. And that's the only thing that could free the people of Israel. Every other thing had been exerted by God in those plagues. But here's the interesting thing. The only reason that the people of Israel are even protected from this same event isn't because of, of, of anything in their own lives. It's not because of their moral aptitude. It's not because of their ethnic pedigree. It's not because of anything special about them. The reason that they are protected from this was already communicated. The Passover feast, this feast that God mercifully provided the people of Israel, the killing of a lamb without a blemish, the, the, the eating of it, its blood on the doorpost, because when God sees the blood, he will pass over them. If there's no blood on it, He's not passing over them. But if he sees the blood, he'll pass over them and no destruction will come to their home. All of this rooted in the lamb and the blood. So what saves Israel here isn't anything in them. What saves them is God's provision, his gracious and merciful provision of Passover. Provision and protection from his just judgment of Egypt. That's what Passover is. Single greatest act of deliverance in Israel's history. But then we we roll up to John 6 with Jesus and we find, according to John, that everything that happens in John 6 happens on the approach to Passover where Jesus, in John 6, on the eve of this feast taking place, tells the people of Israel the following things. Verse 53 of John 6. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So here's the third facet that we need to see. The root of Christ's provision, I am the bread of life, and protection, I will never cast you out. For his people, for all of us, is that he alone is the final Passover sacrifice. He is the lamb to be slain. Our eternal provision in Christ, our eternal protection, are rooted in this one sacrifice. John the Baptist at the very beginning of the Gospel of John signaled this very clearly when he saw Jesus in John 1.29 and said, you guys remember this? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sin of the world. John the Baptist saw this. This is why Jesus alone is the source of eternal life. He is the Passover Lamb. And it's only through him that we can be freed from our sin, and the just punishment do that. Everything else we face in our lives, everything else that we face in our lives, as important as it might be, is eternally irrelevant compared to this one reality. The fact of the matter is, we live in a universe where the God who created this universe is infinitely worthy and infinitely holy. We could live in a universe where the God is worthless, but we don't. And we have, in our lives, dishonored him by putting our trust and our affection on created things and not the creator. That's the greatest peril that we experience. We've dishonored an infinitely holy God who takes his value very seriously. This was the problem with the crowd that left Jesus in Capernaum. And this is the greatest problem, the single greatest problem for every single one of the 7.9 billion human beings that are on this planet right now. That there is a God who is righteous and just and takes his infinite value seriously. And therefore, our dishonoring of him by loving other things more than him, 
puts us in the direct pathway of the very same thing that Egypt faced that night. His just and holy wrath. We don't like the word wrath. Wrath is an uncomfortable word. It's uncomfortable saying it outside right now (laughs) in front of a bunch of houses. But there's a good reason we don't like it. Because it's a serious topic. Wrath is a horrific thought. The wrath of God is not something we should be comfortable about. Never comfortable saying. Because treating God as secondary is treating him as worthless. And that's what sin is. So what happened on, at, in Egypt on that dark, horrific night thousands of years ago is merely a faint echo of what kind of justice is due us for what we've done with God. For refusing the bread of life. For rejecting the eternal provision of Christ. So the greatest need of this world is, is not physical provision in food, although that is important. The greatest need that this world had is, has is not physical protection. The greatest need that this world has is Christ, the Passover lamb. Everything else in our lives, as important as it might be, I don't want to diminish it, but I'm telling you right now, it is infinitely secondary. And I use those words deliberately. Because they don't make a difference after death. What matters after death is if you've embraced the Passover lamb. That's what matters. And and we see here why Jesus used such graphic language to describe our need for him. We must feed on him. We must eat of him. We must drink of him. As if our lives depended on it. Because they do. Eternally. And the feeding that happens in John 6 is faith. It's in coming to Christ, receiving him, putting our trust in him, and embracing him. And when we do that, God puts the blood of the the final Passover lamb on the doorpost of our souls so that we can have life with him forever. That's what happens. So that his justice do us for belittling his name doesn't fall on us, but falls on the the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. He is the only sacrifice that is sufficient for the provision and protection that we need that lasts forever. This is what John 6 is about. This is the, the, the whole tapestry of John 6, and it's a test. The entire chapter is a test, a test that comes to everyone who hears the gospel. The test is this question, Who is Jesus to you? Is this Jesus your Jesus? Or is Jesus in your mind something else? Something more comfortable? Something that allows you to keep other treasures in your life above him? And the point of John 6 is Jesus is holding out these realities and saying, I want you to see these physical things that I did and what I've said about myself. Penetrate the, 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 the pictures of these things and look at the reality that I alone am your provision. I alone am your pr- protection. All because of the cross where the Passover lamb gave his life for us. The cross is the ultimate and final Passover sacrifice that secures for all who believe the promise of eternal life. And if you need a definition for what eternal life is, let me give it to you. Psalm 16 is the last song we sang. And at the last verse of that psalm is, In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16:11, And what that means is eternal life is unceasing, boundless joy in the presence of the one for whom our souls were made. That's what it is. And that's who Jesus is. Do we see him as this? Do we come to him as this? Have we passed the test? If, if you don't see Jesus as this today, if, you, if, you, if, you, if I'm describing a Jesus that is foreign to you as your provision and as your protection 
that I'm pleading with you. Hear the words that I say. He offers himself as these things freely to all who believe. Come to him. Believe in him. Trust him. Set your affections on him. And this is yours. And if your faith is is in Christ today, if you recognize this Jesus, and you love this Jesus, and this Jesus is your treasure, then in the next few moments, we're going to be singing. And we're going to do what we do every week. We're going to participate, if you're willing, in the Lord's Supper. There's single-serve communion cups over on the table. During the song, you can grab them. The Lord's Supper is the, the seminal moment for the Christian life because it is the very same Passover supper that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And so as you take the elements, as you partake in the cup and the, the bread, I want, for those who believe, to commend to you one more time the words of Peter. I, I want to give you his response. I want Jesus to be for us what he was for Peter in that moment in John 6, when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. As you take the elements, speak with the Lord in your heart and ask God, put those words, Father, in my mouth and in my heart and in my soul so that I can sincerely say that from the depths of who I am, Lord, to whom shall I go? You alone are my treasure. You alone are sufficient. You alone are my protection. And I will hold on to you to the end. And I promise in doing that, not only will you be encouraged about the realities in John 6, but you will begin to see and glimpse at what Peter was seeing in that moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the the depths of the realities that we are seeing here in John 6 are too great for me to possibly describe. And for me to do justice to, I, I just I, I feel completely outclassed and overshadowed by the glory of this text. And I, I'm pleading with you, Father, that you would do for me and for my friends here the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, so that what we see in John six it isn't merely words on a page that are nice. It isn't merely aphorisms that we put on bumper stickers, but they are realities that are driven down into the deepest parts of who we are. And no matter what we go through in life, no matter if it's lacking things, no matter if it's physical danger, no matter what it is, we have a Passover sacrifice in Christ Jesus that has given us eternally an all-sufficient source of provision and an all-sufficient source of protection that will never fail us. Help us feel that, and help us cling to Jesus as though that is true to us every day of our lives. We ask this, Father God, trusting in you. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.